Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading two passages this morning, both from James. The first is from James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And then also from chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and let your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Open our eyes and our hearts by the power of your spirit to receive your word as it is preached. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Desire gives birth to sin, which grows and brings death. God's word is a mirror. True religion is caring for widows and orphans. Faith without works is dead. The tongue is a spark that ignites a forest fire. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. These are just some of the well-known sayings and metaphors that litter the letter of James. James is an eminently practical book and has been likened to the book of Proverbs for its wisdom and the variety of subjects that it addresses. I'm intending to start a series working through the book of James, but this morning, instead of picking one particular passage, we're going to do a little bit of an overview. And I want to give you a little bit of context for the book as a whole. James draws heavily from the teachings of Jesus, particularly. Um, it's been noted that, his, that James' instructions in his letter um, draw more specifically from Jesus' teachings, and especially the Sermon on the Mount, probably more so, more directly than any other of the epistles. So you'll hear echoes specifically from the Sermon on the Mount as, you, as we go through the book of James. The general consensus for most of church history has been that the author of the book of James is James the Just. This is the James that presided over the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and he was also the brother of Jesus. Um, there is some, uh, a little bit of, you have to piece things together. There's nothing explicit for us in the text, in the book of James itself, to tell us this. But this has been the uh, consensus throughout, the general consensus throughout church history. The other primary contender for the author of this letter is James, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 original apostles and the brother of John. Um, and there's arguments as to which one is the uh, actual author. The gen in general, the primary reason to not consider it to be James, the son of Zebedee, is because of his early martyrdom. So in Acts uh, chapter 12, we're told that Herod mur martyrs, uh, murders uh, James, the brother of John. And generally speaking, most commentators say that because he was uh, martyred so early, it's unlikely that he was the author of this particular letter. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the jury's still out. I'm still studying that and working through that. But regardless of who the, of which of these two is the author of the book of James, whoever uh, authored this letter would have been 
uh, highly respected by the early church as an apostle. His, uh, both of these Jameses were highly respected in the church. They, were, they carried a lot of weight and authority in the early church. They had close relationships with the Lord, and they were well respected because of this. James writes, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He identifies them as the 12 tribes, I think, for two reasons, alluding to his audience as primarily Jews, which is another reason that some uh, date this letter earlier in uh, the early church, around the mid, mid to late 40s. But he's addressing particularly Jews, as opposed to many of the other epistles which are addressing Jews and Gentiles together. He also calls them the 12 tribes, I think, to identify them as the new Israel. In Israel at this time, the tribes were all mixed up. There was not a clear lineage for most of the tribes. Um, and so, uh, and, and now with, the, with Christ having come and being raised from the dead, uh, there is a new Israel that is established. So he identifies these Christians that he's writing to that have been scattered throughout the known world. He, he identifies them as the 12 tribes, even though the actual 12 tribes are, is in one respect almost meaningless to them genealogically anymore. But they are the new Israel. They are representing the new Israel that God has created. They've been scattered beyond Jerusalem, likely due to the persecution of the Jewish authorities. And so like all of scripture, while James was not written particularly to us, it is full of wisdom and exhortations very applicable for us in our time. So James was not written to us. It's important for us to remember the historical context in which James was written, but it is certainly full of wonderful, uh, long, uh, time-tested, long-lasting wisdom and exhortations for us. Early on in the letter, James says that he who doubts God is double-minded. I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open to James. We're mostly going to just stay in the book of James today, but we're going to look at a number of different passages as we do a bit of an overview. Look at James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... And in context there, we'll get into what exactly he's speaking about. Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." James associates this idea of doubting God, he who asks in doubt, with, without faith, he who asks for wisdom, doubting God, is a double-minded man. And this becomes a major theme throughout James' letter. James argues that believers should seek wisdom from God when we are beset by trials. Uh, the first few verses of James after his greeting, are, are very well known. Uh, Brett referenced it in the call to worship and quoted from it this morning. To count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And then James goes on to explain what he means by that and why we should do that. But then he says that Christians should seek wisdom to understand their trials, to understand the purpose of their trials from God. But they should do so by faith. Seeking from God how it is that he is using trials to make us mature and complete. In the midst of various trials, we are often drawn to ask, why God? This is a question that all of us at different times and in different, maybe at different intensities, have asked. Why God? 
Why are you bringing this trial to me now? This is true in large trials, large lifelong struggles that we may have. It's also true in, in the moment, right? Things happen in the middle of the night and you think, why God? The big things, small things, long-lasting things, short-term things, we've all asked this question and it's an appropriate question to ask. But James warns that asking for wisdom, this, this sort of asking why God, asking for wisdom to understand the answer to this question must be done in faith. If we're going to ask this question, it must be asked in faith, with no doubting. In other words, we should seek wisdom from God about our circumstances without questioning his goodness. We should be steadfast, trusting the Lord, establishing our hearts, and persevering like Job until we see the compassion and mercy of God. As James, this is what James concludes his letter with in chapter 5. Now, there's much application that we can draw from this. There's a lot that we could dive into and study, and we're not going to do that this morning. Um, because, what I, again, what I want to do is give you a little bit of an overview of James. We're going to trace this theme. This is where James introduces this, this theme of being double-minded and trace it through the letter. And so as we go through these different sections that identifies that, I'm not going to go deep into these passages and unpack everything that there may be. Even if I did, it wouldn't unpack everything. But you know what I mean. We're not going to dive real deep into these right now because I want to step back and see the letter as a whole and see this theme that runs all the way through. And then as, as I preach through in, Lord willing, in successive sermons, be able to go through these individual sections in more detail. So James says we must ask, in, ask for wisdom in the midst of our trials in faith with no doubting. And he says that to be double-minded... To ask God for wisdom in doubt, to ask this why God question with doubt, is to be double-minded and is to be unstable in everything. To ask why God in doubt is not just to be unstable in that question, in that moment. James actually says a man who asks in doubt is like a wave driven and tossed by the sea. He's unstable in all of his ways. He has no foundation. To be double-minded, what, what does this mean? Uh, interestingly, uh, one commentator pointed out that this is probably the first time in Greek literature that this word shows up. It's possible that James coined the term. It's possible that this term double-minded in Greek is a, an explicitly Christian term. <laughs> the first time it shows up is in God's inspired word. What does it mean to be double-minded? To be double-minded is to, on the one hand, want what, God's, what God wants, to want what God wants with one part of you, and at the same time also to reject what he wants, to reject what he desires with another part of you. To put this negatively, to be double-minded is to not love and submit to God with and in everything. Another way to put this might be to, to be double-minded is to not be single-minded with our eyes fixed on Christ. To not be single-minded in thinking that what God has for me is the best and I'm going to rest in that and trust in that and the only way that I can do that is by fixing my eyes upon Christ. As Jesus noted, you cannot serve two masters. Psalm 119 tells us that blessed is the man who seeks the Lord with his whole heart, with everything that he has. And yet even believers, bought with the blood of Christ, given new hearts, 
we are still tempted to this double-mindedness often. Are we not? Are you not often tempted to ask why God and to doubt? I think we, we can ask this question, why God, or we can, we can encounter different situations and we doubt God Again, whether it's these long-term situations that we find ourselves in or these short-term moments where things suddenly seem very chaotic, and we throw up our hands and we think God must be throwing up his hands as well. This is doubting. We're tossed like a wave when we do so. And so because this is something that we are very tempted with, James comes at this double-mindedness from all kinds of different angles as he goes through the letter. So that's what I'd like to do with you right now. We're going to walk through a number of different sections and see this theme. Even though he doesn't use, repeat the term double-minded in each of these sections, the, I think you'll see the theme of this double-mindedness, this double-minded man who's holding two things together at once or trying to that, are, that, are, that he's unable to hold together. These things cannot be held together. This desire to, on the one hand, serve God, follow God, love God, but also hold some of these other things that are uh, opposed to God himself. Okay, so first of all, in chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, this is a, another famous passage from the book of James. James says that uh, those who hear the word preach must also do the word. We must not only be hearers of the word, we can't come to church on Sunday and hear the word preached and then go and live our lives as though the preacher said nothing. You can't read your Bible and then go on with your life as though it doesn't instruct the way that you live. We're not to be hearers only, but we're also to be doers of the word. We must not only believe the gospel in our hearts, but we must live it out. We can't just listen to God's commands and nod along in agreement and then go and not do what he says. Somebody who's living this way is double-minded if he knows what God says to do and then goes off and neglects to apply it. And James has a wonderful metaphor in this section of the word of God being like a mirror. Um, somebody who is living this way is like somebody who looks in the mirror and sees his face and then turns away from the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Right? So somebody who goes and he looks in the mirror and he sees that he's all grimy because the, the mirror is reflecting his grimy state, and then he turns away from the mirror and thinks that everything's okay, instead of going and washing his face. This is a double-minded man. And it is ultimately because we do not take seriously the words of God. It's because when God says what he says in his word, when he gives commands or he gives promises, and we go and we live as if we don't believe those promises, or we don't obey his commands, we don't do the word that he says, we don't take his word seriously. We doubt him. We're double-minded. Similarly, we are double-minded. This is then in, in chapter 2, verse 1. We're double-minded if we hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. In James' day, there was a lot of um, socioeconomic divisions among the people. Um, we have our own social divisions. They're not exactly the same as what James was, uh, James was addressing, but there are many parallels. And again, we're not going to go into detail with that this morning. We'll save that for a later sermon. But to take what James, the examples that James gives particularly, if we show preference and special attention to some, especially in the worship service, because of their wealth, because of their status, we're forgetting the grace of God and the gospel of Christ. 
actually to, to address people differently because of their wealth or to, to present the gospel to them differently or to show them preference in the church, to give them the best seats in the church and to make the poor sit in the back, as happened in James' day, to do so is contrary to the gospel. It's doubting the power of God and the power of his grace to bring all of those people to himself in the, with the same standing before him. And I think it's really easy here to see this double-mindedness. Believers ought not to come to church with the purpose of worshiping God to then elevate some over others based on the kind of social divisions that the gospel has taken down. If the gospel has removed those social divisions, uh, the kind of divisions that, not not that James is dealing with here, but that Paul addresses elsewhere, Jew nor Gentile, male, male nor female, slave nor free, if we are treating those social divisions as though they have a place in the worship service, we're ignoring the grace of the gospel. We're ignoring the grace of the gospel that all people are able to come into God's presence and with the same standing before him because of the work of Christ. This partiality is doubting the power of the gospel and instead seeking to curry favor with those who have earthly power. And so there you have another instance, although James doesn't mention the word particularly, an instance of this double-mindedness. Another instance in chapter 2 is the second half of the chapter, verses 14 through 26, where James addresses a misunderstanding about justification by faith that's related to this theme of double-mindedness. We'll get, again, in the future, we will get into more detail um, what James' particular argument is here and how there are many people that see a lot of conflict between what James says about justification by faith and what we see Paul saying about justification by faith in Romans and Galatians and other places. So we'll get into how those actually work together very beautifully in God's word. We're not going to get into the details of that this morning. But here is what James is, does point out with regards to this theme of double-mindedness. Some claim to be saved by their profession of faith, but they do not do the works that spring from that faith. In many ways, this is parallel to James' instruction to not only be hearers of the word, but also to be doers of the word. James is addressing those that think that because they are saved by faith, they, have, they don't need to apply that faith. They don't need to do the works of faith. And James boldly states that faith without works is dead. A man who claims to have faith but does not have works that demonstrate it, and the example that James uses is particularly the example of um, loving your neighbor, loving and providing for those immediately around you who are in need. And if we are professing to have faith but not demonstrating the works of faith, this is double-mindedness. This man is inclined to believe the truths of the gospel, but is, seek, is not seeking the Lord with everything that he has. So he's inclined to believe that it's true. He, he holds on to the, the doctrine of justification by faith. He claims to be placing his trust in Jesus alone for his salvation, but he's not actually doing what Jesus has called him to do. And so his faith is dead. And this is the danger of the double mind. Double-mindedness, at the, at the beginning of James' letter, we could see double-mindedness being something that's really natural to all of us, something, an easy temptation to fall into when we're asking this why God question. 
But I think James, as the letter goes on, shows that this double-mindedness, as it continues to take root, and if it's not dealt with, if we are not um, if we are not constantly being redirected and redirecting ourselves by the grace of God to be single-minded on Christ, this double-mindedness leads to death. Because this is what the faith of a man who lives with this double mind is like. Faith without works, James says, is dead. This kind of faith is dead like a corpse with no spirit. It's just lying there. It is not faith that rests then in the grace of God because it is faith that doubts God's grace. Another section in chapter 3, the first half of chapter 3. James identifies the temptation to be double-tongued. This is a wonderful passage where James goes through a variety of metaphors describing the tongue. They're very vivid, and some of them are probably familiar to you. This is where he talks about the tongue as a, uh, a small flame or a spark that can ignite an entire forest. That's how powerful the words that come out of your mouth are. It's like a rudder that can steer a ship. It directs which way you go. But in the midst of all of this, towards the end of this section, James says that we use this gift of speech that God has given to us, both to bless our God and Father and to curse men made in God's image. He says this in, uh, in verse 9, starting in verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. So James identifies this temptation that we have, that we fall into, to be double-tongued. To bless God and curse our brother. To bless God and curse the one who is made in God's image. And there obviously may, may be many circumstances and reasons why we might be provoked into cursing one who bears God's image. And we could talk about the, how to deal with those particularly. But stepping away from those for just a moment, the fact of cursing someone who bears God's image reveals something about us. If we truly loved and rested in God, how is it that we could then curse his image bearers? If we love God and we're resting in him and trusting in him, how is it that you could curse one that bears his image? Now, of course, as, as with many of these sections, there are tensions in this. We know of other scriptures where we have, um, and in our church, we sing the imprecatory psalms. We sing God's curses upon those that are disobedient to him and that are violent against the innocent. That's consistent with what James is saying here, though. Because in that instance, we're calling upon God to do his work. We're calling upon God to do his work. We're, we're not directly cursing those that bear his image. We're calling on God to be the just judge. So how is it that somebody who trusts God, who rests in him, can bless God, can worship God, and at the same time curse his image bearer? We could even maybe say not just curse, but um, speak spitefully of his image bearer. 
to speak this way, to curse with your mouth, to let your mouth rule you in uh, the kinds of things that, Ephes- that Paul talks about in Ephesians and James identifies here in ways that are dishonoring to God is to be double-minded. It's because we are, when we let our mouth speak this way, when we speak this way, when we direct our mouths with foul language and spiteful language and cursing language, it's because actually ultimately we are not resting in God's grace. We are not loving him with our whole heart and our whole being, our whole person, and it's because we are double-minded. And James says that this should not be so. It's unnatural. It's as unnatural as a spring that sends both bitter and sweet water out at the same time. It's unnatural. It's as unnatural as a fig tree that is producing both figs and olives. If you saw a fig tree or you know, an orange tree that was producing both oranges and avocados, you'd think there's something wrong here. It's unnatural. And now I'm thinking, do avocados actually grow on trees? I can't remember. You get me, it'd be even more unnatural if it was, right? Okay. You get my point. It's unnatural to speak with this double tongue. And it's rooted in this doubt, in this, um, in this doubt of God and his goodness and his grace, because you're not resting in that. Christians, on the other hand, should do everything in word and deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3. And it's very, it's very important for us to remember that. Christians are to do everything. Not just in the way that we act. We're, not, we're, we're to be not only hearers of the word. We're to be doers of the word. But we're also supposed to speak in a certain way. We're to speak. And our, and our language and the way that we talk. Ought to be subject to the name of Jesus. This theme of double-mindedness then reaches a climax in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. James asks this question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, At the beginning of the chapter, it seems that James is addressing particular uh, contentions among these Christians that he is writing to that, are, that come out of envy and covetousness because they're warring against one another. And he says, where does all this warring come from? It comes from your lusts. If you back up to the end of chapter three, he's talking about the lusts that come from envy and covetousness. They're fighting one another, backbiting one another because of their envy. And James identifies this as this sort of envy, this sort of warring with one another um, because of covetousness, identifies this as friendship with the world. These Christians, they have a desire to be like and to be liked by the world. They have a desire to to grasp what God has given to their brothers and sisters in Christ. They have a desire to um, see themselves built up over their brothers and, the, and James says this is worldly, it's conforming to the world's standards, and it is at odds with their profession of faith. This double-mindedness, unchecked, will make them enemies of God. So you see how James, this theme, as it goes through James, it, in some ways it really does crescendo. 
It begins with this, this I'm like a wave tossed by the sea. I'm unstable. I'm doubting God. I have questions, and I'm, I'm asking, but not in faith. And then it builds. We be this double-mindedness. We are um, hearers of the word only and not doers of the word. And that leads to faith without works. And that faith is dead. And that leads to double-tonguedness. And we're speaking with one tongue to bless God and another to curse God. And that, and that culminates then. I don't know that James is directly making an argument that these things build on one another, but this is how he presents it in his letter. And it culminates in this enmity with God. You become an enemy of God when we give in to this double-mindedness. And so then in verses 6 through 10, um, some of which we read at the very beginning of the sermon, this is where James um, brings this all together and he urges repentance, humility, and submission to God. This is the answer to that double mind. Double-mindedness comes ultimately from doubt of God. Again, chapter 1. Verses 6 and 8 there. The man who, is, who doubts God, who asks God but not in faith, asks God for wisdom but not in faith, is one who doubts God and he is unstable in all his ways. What is it that we are doubting when we doubt God in this way? Ultimately, we're doubting his goodness. We're doubting his sovereignty. We're doubting that he is trustworthy. That we're doubting that what he says in his word is actually true. Is actually true beyond what I can see. Is actually true beyond what I am experiencing in the moment. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. This is precisely what the serpent tempted Eve with in the garden. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the serpent tempting Eve with? There's a number of ways we could look at this. But one thing that's very clear is he's, he's tempting her with two things in particular. One, he's tempting her to question the trustworthiness of God's word. Did God really say? Did God really say? And having questioned that, he then leads to another question. The question that's implied in what he says in verse 5 is that, is, is God holding back on you? Because God knows that if you eat of this fruit, in the day that you eat of it, you will be wise. In fact, you'll be like God. Is God really good if he's holding out on you? 
The serpent tempts Eve to doubt God by, by tempting her to doubt what he has said, to doubt his words, and then, because of that, to doubt his goodness. Is God true to his word? And is he good? This is the temptation that, uh, following this, plunges mankind into sin. And we still deal with these temptations today. But look now at Matthew chapter 4. We're actually going to start in chapter 3, the very end. This is when Jesus has been baptized. He's raised up out of the water. The Spirit descends upon him. And uh, he hears the voice from heaven saying this. Verse 17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so then chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And the devil tempts Jesus two other times while he's here in the wilderness. And both times, all three times, he tempts Jesus by questioning what God has said. He tempts Jesus because God has just said, this is my beloved son. And the devil comes and he says, if you are the son of God, prove it, demonstrate it, show it, take what is yours. And Jesus responds each time by quoting what God has actually said and rejecting this temptation from the devil. But I want you to see that um, what the devil is tempting Jesus with here is in some ways the same thing that he was tempting Eve with in the garden. Did God really say that you are his beloved son? Come on, prove it to me. He's tempting Jesus to doubt what God has said, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's plan for him while he's in the wilderness, at the end of this time in the wilderness, to doubt God's promises to him that he would go to the cross and because of that in his death and resurrection and ascension, inherit the nations. This is what the devil is, is, causing, is, is tempting Jesus to doubt. And Jesus resists this temptation. But it is this doubt of God, this doubt of God's goodness, this doubt of God's sovereignty, this doubt of God's word that you are still tempted with every week. This is, this, this is a temptation that besets all of us to doubt what God has said, to doubt his goodness in the midst of our circumstances, to doubt his sovereignty, but not just his sovereign control over everything, his sovereign goodness over everything. And so, hear James' words again. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. Resist this temptation to doubt God. And he will flee from you. Jesus is our example of this. He resisted the devil and the devil left him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When you're asking that why question, draw near to him. Rest in him as you go to him with these questions, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
the Lord God, the Lord God Almighty is good. And all of his ways are perfect. His plans for you, all of his commands to you, all of his desires for you are perfect. And perfectly designed for you. That trial that you've been dealing with this last week, that tough situation, those tensions in your life, that burden that you have to bear is particularly tailored for you because God loves you. And he loves you so much that he's not going to allow you to continue on without growing you up into the person he is making you to be. And the greatest evidence for this, if, if you doubt that, if you doubt that God is really good and he's so good that he's going to put you through these trials because of his love for you, if you doubt that, then you're not looking at Jesus. Because that is the greatest evidence that God loves you in the midst of all those trials. He loves you and you know that because he sent his son to die for you. To take your sins, be crucified, put in the grave, and then raised from the dead with your sins left behind. And if this is true, if Jesus died for you, then you can know with certainty what Brett talked about in the call to worship, that all things work together for good for those who love God. You can know that's true. But here's the thing, though. We think of that phrase, we're good Reformed Christians here, Right? We believe in God's sovereignty. And so we hear this verse that God works all things together for good for those who love him. Yes and amen. I, yes, that's true. I've got it on a plaque in my house probably. And at the same time, when, when the rubber meets the road, we usually think of that verse as a platitude. God works all things together, together for good. Probably. I hope. I really don't want to hear that right now. Don't tell me that. That's double-mindedness. When you, when you think of these words of Scripture that are for you, for your comfort, for your sustenance, through the trials and the, and the temptations that God has brought to you, and if you think of it as a platitude, you're double-minded. You're doubting God. You're doubting His Word. But did Jesus die for you? If he shed his blood for you, then you can trust him and you can trust the father who sent him and who sent that circumstance to you. You can trust him with everything. So again, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He gives more grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do give us grace according to our needs. Father, teach us to be single-minded, fixing our eyes, our hearts, our minds on Christ, doing everything in joyful submission to his lordship. And Father, as we do so, give us grace not to doubt you in the midst of all that you bring for us to walk through. Teach us to rest in your grace, in your promises, and in the work that you have done for us through your son on the cross. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.